Good morning, and welcome to the Sons of Sequoia podcast, broadcasting live from Wheat Ridge, Colorado, the home of the champions. Today is September 30th, and it is our 118th episode. We will be diving back into the most recent September-October issue of Foreign Affairs to discuss Cynthia Miller Idris's article, From 9-11 to 1-6, and I believe the subtitle is The War on Terror Supercharged the Far Right. Uh, I'm joined by my co-host, Michael Harper, my father. How are you this morning? I'm doing fine. I'm looking forward to another stimulating, interesting, and also pertinent and very valuable uh, article in the Foreign Affairs. How are you this morning, David? I'm doing okay. So before we jump into it, let's just take a look, because we like to do this, at Cynthia Miller Idris's Bona Fides. So here is the article that we'll be looking at. And Cynthia Miller Idris is the director of the Polarization and Extremism Research and Innovation Lab at the American University and author of Hate in the Homeland, The New Global Far Right. So this should be fascinating. I think it's one of those articles in foreign affairs where the title is what chose me, uh, caused me to choose it just because it's mm-hmm. uh, very, very in your face. Um, yep. And usually these articles are very well-written, well-researched from authorities, and it's the place to go to actually learn about the details rather than just the internet. Yes, definitely. Not some random source. This lady is a scholar on radicalization. And mm-hmm. um, and even, even though it is their opinion, uh, their opinion is based on knowledge, experience, and... Uh, uh, a broad uh, birth of information that many people do not have. Mm-hmm. And so even though you may disagree, it's good to understand, listen, and try to understand. Yeah. I saw, I think it was on Instagram. Um, it was an article. Now I, now I'm spreading the fake news because I, I didn't source this. I didn't, I just saw someone post this. But, um... 16 out of the 20 most shared articles during the 2020 presidential election um, came from foreign countries. They were fake news written by foreign countries. So uh, it spreads like wildfire. The truth can make it, though, a lie can make its way around the world while the truth is still putting on its boots. I believe that's a quote. Um, but this is not exactly about that. This is from 9 11 to 1 6. The war on terror supercharged the far right. This isn't about misinformation. This isn't about um, this is about the war on terror itself supercharging the far right. So I think that maybe we should just jump into the article and see what it has to say. Sounds good, David. Okay, from 9-11 to 1-6, the war on terror supercharged the far right by Cynthia Miller Idris. Radical ideas that are today considered right-wing, white supremacism, violent anti-government libertarianism, Christian extremism, have played starring roles in the American story since the very beginning. For most of the post-war era, however, the far right has mostly stayed underground, relegated to the fringes of American society. It never disappeared, of course, and in the early 1990s, it seemed poised for a resurgence after a series of confrontations that pitted the authorities against anti-government militias and religious extremists, a phase that peaked with the 1995 terrorist bombing of 
a federal building in Oklahoma City by a white supremacist anti-government extremist, which killed 168 people. By the dawn of the new millennium, however, those events seem to be in the rear view. In the years following the Oklahoma City attack, a feared wave of right-wing violence did not materialize. If anything, the bloodshed seemed to further marginalize the far right. Fast forward two decades and the picture looks very different. The past few years have witnessed an explosion of far-right violence and the normalization of the extremist ideas that drive it. In the United States in 2019, 48 people were killed in attacks carried out by domestic violent extremists, 39 of which were carried out by white supremacists, making it the most lethal year for such terrorism in the country since 1995. In 2020, the number of domestic terrorist plots and attacks in the United States reached its highest level since 1994. Two-thirds of those were attributable to white supremacists and other far-right extremists. In March of this year, the FBI had more than 2,000 open investigations into domestic violent extremism, roughly double the number it had open in the summer of 2017. Also in 2020, authorities nationwide arrested nearly three times as many white supremacists as they did in 2017. And last year, reports to the Anti-Defamation League of White Supremacist Propaganda and in the form of flyers, posters, banners, and stickers posted in locations such as parks or college campuses hit an all-time high of more than 5,000, nearly twice the number reported in the previous year. This trend is not limited to the United States. Although jihadis still pose the biggest terrorism threat in Europe, the growth of far-right violence is increasing. The top British counterterrorism official, Neil Basu, recently described right-wing extremism as the United Kingdom's fastest-growing threat. And in Germany, violent crimes motivated by right-wing extremism rose by 10% from 2019 to 2020. Amid this increase in violence, extreme right-wing ideas were becoming mainstream and were normalized, with far-right political parties gaining representation in more than three dozen national parliaments and in the European Parliament. In the United States, Donald Trump's electoral success was both a cause and effect of this trend. His 2016 presidential campaign and his tenure in the White House were steeped in populist, nationalist, nativist, rhetoric, which the far right perceived as a legitimation of their views. By the time the Stop the Steal campaign sought to overturn the legitimate results of the 2020 U.S. presidential election with Trump's explicit encouragement, extremist ideas had taken center stage in American politics. The increase in far-right violence and the normalization of right-wing extremism together culminated in the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol, a brutal assault fueled by far-right ideas that had gone mainstream. The growth of the extreme right has been driven by many factors, including a reactionary backlash to demographic changes and a rising belief in conspiracy theories. It has been further accelerated by the megaphone of social media, as new online channels for amplifying and circulating ideas have, significant, have significantly broadened the influence of far-right propaganda and disinformation, forged global connections across groups and movements, and created new ways for extremism to seep into the mainstream. Ironically, however, it was another form of extremism and Washington's reaction to it that in many ways set in motion the resurgence of the far right in the wake of the 9-11 attacks. Oh, 
resurgence of the far right. In the wake of the 9-11 attacks, the rise of violent jihadism reshaped American politics in ways that created fertile ground for right-wing extremism. The attacks were a gift to peddlers of xenophobia, white supremacism, and Christian nationalism. As dark-skinned Muslim foreigners bent on murdering America, al-Qaeda terrorists and their ilk seemed to have stepped out of a far-right fever dream. Almost overnight, the United States and European countries abounded with precisely the fears that the far right had been trying to stoke for decades. But it wasn't just the terrorists who gave right-wing extremists a boost. So, too, did the U.S.-led war on terrorism, which involved the near-complete pivoting of intelligence, security, and law enforcement attention to the Islamist threat, leaving far-right extremism to grow unfettered. In recent years, right-wing radicals in the United States and Europe have made clear that they are willing and able to embrace the tactics of terrorism. They have become, in some ways, a mirror image of the jihadis whom they despise. Western governments must act decisively to combat this threat. Launching a new war on terror, however, is not the way to do so. The fight against jihadi violence went awry in many ways and produced negative, unintended consequences, including by aiding the rise of the far right, which now possesses the gravest terrorism risks, now poses the grave, gravest terrorism risk. In the fight against the new threat, policymakers need to avoid repeating the very mistakes that contributed to this dangerous new reality. That is section one. What are your thoughts? They're very, very interesting. Uh, well, the first thing I think of that goes through my mind and also from, from my background is that uh, when, you keep, when you keep trying to solve a problem and it doesn't work, you can't solve a problem by methods that don't work. Mm -hmm. You have to think a different way. You have to do something different. And second is that uh, are you really attacking the symptoms or are you trying to solve the problem and the cause uh another thought is that this didn't just come about it's always been there and i think that's what she's saying that it's always been there and what happens is it came to the forefront and now we're we're seeing this unfettered yeah it's it's unleashed but it's always been there and so another approach is saying, well, these kinds of people and thoughts and, and there's always going to be this. Some things don't change and people don't change. There's always going to be good people. There's always going to be evil people, people that want to take you down. That'll always be there. You can't eliminate that. But what you can do is control it. Mm -hmm. And it was not it has not been controlled. You try to wipe it out and wiping it out. You can fuel it and you don't fuel it with the wrong tactics. Uh, that's a, I mean, th those kind of things that go through my head. And maybe that's what she's getting at uh, on how what was done uh, did not eliminate anything. It enhanced and, and fueled uh, the ire of uh, the right wing and the extremists. Yeah. I, so then the question is, what do you do? What is what is the approach? That's what I think. Well, I think it's fascinating because there needs to be a flashpoint. And uh, that flashpoint was the Oklahoma City federal building bombing. And there was action taken against these right-wing militias. I remember I was just a little kid. But I, it was my uncle or my grandfather 
cut out a picture in the Denver Post because there was this fear of militias, these right-wing militias. Do you remember this? And he mm-hmm. cut out a picture of the Michigan militia, militia. And they're like, look at that. And there was a guy that looked exactly like you, <laughs> front and center in the Michigan militia. And he's like, that's not me. I'm in Colorado. But it was, I, I just remember militias were a thing. We were scared. Are the militias going to take over a Capitol building in Michigan? Um, that was that was a legitimate concern in, in the mid-90s. And I was, of course, just a kid. But um, I'm thinking of the great Norm MacDonald, who recently died. But, you know, after 9-11, he had a bit where he's like, you know, everyone's always worried about a terrorist attacking them. You know, what? I'm not worried about a terrorist attacking me. You know what I'm worried about attacking me? My own heart. My own heart is already inside my body. And it's just sitting there like a ticking time bomb waiting to attack me. I think this is a fascinating sort of corollary to this. We had this penchant for right-wing extremism. They already bombed a building and killed hundreds of people. They've um, formed militias and they have a stated aim to do whatever they want. And they can perpetrate terrorist acts. And they're already here. They're American citizens. They're inside our borders. And that's sort of like they're the heart of America. And I think on 1-6 we saw a terrorist attack is way less likely to kill you than a heart attack. That's what Norm MacDonald's point was, and I think that it rings true all these years later. That's a very good point, David. It's a good analogy that uh, when you start looking outside, you should look inside first. Um, and I think that her thing is the resources devoted to fighting terror, they were effective, but they took the focus away from perhaps um, more legitimate threats. Exactly. Exactly. It's a good point. It's a very good point. And it's something to think about. And it's also, it is to think about it in that the next thing is, what do you do? Mm-hmm. Okay, this is what has happened from the past, but here we are today. Is it still happening? What do we do now to prepare for the future? So, uh, and do we keep doing the same things? And I think also the point to me is very well taken. Uh, We went overseas for a war on terror and the terror escalated inside our our borders Mm -hmm. and it got out of hand and, uh, and it, it, it it fueled the, uh, the negativism within our country. Yeah. And we are divided right now. So, so the question is, how do we come together? Sometimes uh, it's easier uh, to to attack division before we're divided. Mm. <laughs> Once we're divided, it's much more difficult to bring people back together. Yeah, and I think that the uh, the article we did on Tuesday also touched on this, mm-hmm. where when you set up an us versus them mentality, it was by Ben, I forget his name. Um, Rhodes, Ben Rhodes. Ben, ben Rhodes. And it was called them versus us. And when you set up a them versus us mentality and the them becomes a relatively insignificant actor. Yes, Al-Qaeda perpetrated an act on 9-11 that was awful. But when we went after them, we really did effectively neutralize their capabilities relatively quickly. Now, we had to stay in those countries and spend trillions of dollars to maintain that uh, neutralization. But people forget about that. That's not the big ticket item. It's been 20 years since... 
since 9-11 happened. So they start to say, who is the new them? And they find them within ourselves. And the tactics of the politics of the time are to say, you know, your views are illegitimate because you're not on my side. But we're all on the same side. We're all Americans here. And yet that works because it worked in the war on terror. And that's the mindset that people have been able to form over the last 20 years. I'm looking for a them. And so if you can define the them as someone within your own borders, someone who looks just like you and who has a lifestyle just like you, but they perhaps have a different political party, then you have a new enemy. And it, mm-hmm. and if you can make them as anathema, as a terrorist, you know, if someone um, as Nancy Pelosi is the new Osama bin Laden, that doesn't make any sense. Nancy Pelosi is a uh, American woman who's lived here for 80 some odd years, you know, but if you can make someone believe that, then they'll believe anything they're told. And that's sort of the roots of extremism. Mm-hmm. Um, should we continue with the article? Okay. Uh, Do you want Arabian, to read? Yeah, Arabian Nights. I'm not sure what that means. Arabia, what's a Arabian Night? David? I think it's Europe and Arabia. Oh, Okay, Europe and Arabia, Arabian Nights. Very good. Okay. The modern far right exists on a broad spectrum and includes neo-Nazis, white supremacists, militias opposed to federal governments, self-described Western chauvinists, groups such as Proud Boys, alt-right provocateurs, conspiracy theorists, and misogynists who call themselves incels, short for involuntary celibates. What links these desperate elements is a conspiratorial worldview and a shared adherence to anti-democratic and illiberal ideas. A subset of them also support, at least in theory, the use of mass violence against civilian and government targets. Wow, what a paragraph. Although their ideas and iconography draw inspiration from the Confederacy, the Ku Klux Klan, the Nazis, and other dead and moribund movements, today's American and European far-right groups are more firmly rooted in much more recent developments. In the early 1980s, episodes of far-right terrorism struck France, Italy, and Germany as part of a rising neo-fascist and neo-Nazi movement in Western Europe. Those attacks were followed by a wave of neo-Nazi activity that swept through Germany and Eastern Europe during the period of rapid social, political, and economic change that took place in the 1990s, after the fall of the Iron Curtain and German reunification. This form of radicalism manifested in a violent, racist, skinhead youth culture, which celebrated street fighting and attacks on asylum seekers and immigrants. At around the same time, racist, skinhead groups began to emerge in North America, too, some of them linked to the hardcore music scene. In the United States, another source of far-right and anti-government extremists was a small but dedicated contingent of Vietnam War veterans who set up boot camps to train paramilitary forces with the goal of establishing a white separatist homeland. As the availability of assault weapons and tactical equipment expanded in the United States in the 1980s and 1990s, militias built staggering arsenals and grew bolder in confronting authorities. A series of high-profile standoffs between radical groups and law enforcement agencies, including at Ruby Ridge in Idaho in 1992 in Waco, Texas the following year, drew attention to the threat. 
which had been simmering for years. The Oklahoma City bombing turned the far right into the most pressing issue in national politics, at least for a time. But instead of being emboldened by the bombing, the far right went further underground in its aftermath. Membership in unlawful militias declined. Militia leaders distanced themselves from the bombers, who had brought unwanted attention to their cause from law enforcement. As the threat seemingly diminished, the far right, far right faded from the public consciousness. Amid the uh, booming economy, technological advancements, and relative peace and prosperity of the late 1990s, terrorism became a low priority for the American public. That all changed on September 11, 2001. As the country reeled from the attacks, far-right groups saw an opportunity and grabbed it, quickly and easily adapting their messages to the new landscape. A well-resourced Islamophobia industry sprang into action, using a variety of scarce tactics, uh, scare tactics to generate hysteria about the looming threat. In Europe, the far right's imagination was gripped by a conspiracy theory introduced by the British author Bat Yor in her 2005 book, Eurabia, which argued that the profound demographic changes taking place in European countries were not coincidental. On the contrary, Eurabia suggested Muslims were orchestrating a revival of the caliphate by replacing white Europeans through immigration and high birth rates. Europe, Yor warned, was shifting from a Christian civilization to Islamic one, and Europeans would soon be subject to Islamic law or Sharia, forced either to convert or to accept subservient roles. In this milieu, uh, anti-immigrant sentiment became more mainstream. Far-right political parties and organizations embraced the idea of an Islamic threat, using metaphors and iconog iconography uh, from the Christian Crusades and 15th century pogroms in Europe that targeted Muslims and Jews. In France, the leader of the right-wing National Front, Marine Le Pen, uh, compared groups of Muslims praying on sidewalks outside mosques to Nazi occupiers. The Dutch far-right leader, Gert Wilders, described refugees as an Islamic invasion. The British arm of the far-right group Generation Identity linked the fight against multiculturalism to the 15th century efforts of European forces to retake the Iberian Peninsula from the Muslim rulers who controlled it, who controlled most of it at that time. By 2015, tens of thousands of people were marching in cities across Europe under the banner of a group called PEGIDA, a German acronym for Patriotic Europeans Against Islamization, Islamization of the West. Gatherings that sometimes led to violence between demonstrators and anti-fascist counter-protesters. During the 2019 elections for the European Parliament, the German far-right party, Alternative for Germany, put up billboards featuring a detail from Jean-Léon Jérôme 1866 painting, The Slave Market, which depicts a naked white woman having her teeth and mouth probed by a dark-skinned, turban-clad man. The posters urged voters to learn from history so that Europe does not become Eurobia. 
In the United States, rising anti-Muslimist sentiment found expression in a successful movement to prevent the building of a mosque near the site of a 9-11 attack in New York City and in legislation passed in dozens of U.S. states to thwart non-existent efforts to subject residents to Sharia. After the election of the first black president in the U.S. history in 2008, record-breaking numbers of hate groups emerged. The anti-government fringe that had gone quiet after the Oklahoma City bombing resurfaced with calls for insurrection and revolution coming from militias such as the Oath Keepers and movements such as the Three Precenters, whose name was inspired by the false claim that it took only 3% of the American colonists to successfully rise up against the British. Starting in 2014, North America also witnessed a spurt of violent attacks carried out by incels inspired by male supremacist ideology, leading to the deaths of dozens of women, including in mass shootings at a college sorority and a yoga studio and in a vehicle ramming attacks on the streets of Toronto. In 2016, the Pride Boys arrived on the scene, engaging in street brawls and claiming to stand in defense of Western civilization. Well, there you go. Yeah, pretty scathing. Yeah, and um, I know that if you're inculcated in the Fox News, Newsmax, OAN sphere, the first thing you'll go to is what about Antifa? But I think it would be much more difficult to put together a list of events where dozens of people were killed. Um, that's documented in newspapers, like like this lady just did for far right groups. And, Correct. Um, and that being said, what about Antifa? Is not a defense for the rising incidences of violence among these groups. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It's like if I go and I, uh, if I go to PetSmart and I beat up the kittens and the police come and they arrest me and I say, but what about all the people that beat up humans? Why aren't you arresting them? That doesn't mean that I didn't do something wrong. Um, do you see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Um, I just I want to say what would a what would a Fox News segment on this last section be? It would say what about left wing violence? And the question is okay, enumerate ten to fifteen examples of left wing violence over the last fifteen to twenty years where people lost their lives. Now that would be a good question. After that, you know, where dozens of people lost their lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, true. True. But, uh, you know, she's to me, this section, she's not really proposing anything. She's laying foundation and a groundwork of what I think she's getting ready, ready to say, no, this is what has happened. Mm-hmm. This is where we are. This is what happened. This is where we are. This is where we're going. But I don't hear any solutions to this. I think you're going to be disappointed with this article. I think this article is showing the security posture, the prevailing ideas after 9-11 are what led to 1-6. And I don't think there's going to be too many solutions, except for maybe to imply that prevailing ideas and the security posture of a nation 
can influence extremism within its borders. So what should our what should our security posture be going forward? And hopefully that'll tamp down on far right violence. It's a trickle down. I think that that may be the ultimate proposal. Well, so far, she's laying down facts. She's mm-hmm. laying down the far right. She's a, she's approaching it from the far right, looking at what's happening, uh, because that's where the violence has is. Uh, and uh, and if you think about it, sometimes you do have to look at the history and you do have to step back and look at the reality. And I think that's what she's doing. This is exactly what happened. Mm-hmm. Don't ignore it. By saying, well, what about the far left? Well, that's ignoring the facts of the present. Yeah. That's not an argument. And actually, that's what I'm sure there's a logical. What, uh, we looked at logic. That's that's a logic rhetorical device that that puts the attention away from uh, the issue. Yeah. You know, bringing up some straw issue that really has no meaning. Mm-hmm. You know, it has no meaning. But let's let's talk about that. Yeah. But what what about what about the color of the sky tonight? You know, well, that has nothing to do with this, you know, mm-hmm. or it has little to do with it or that's a different issue. Yeah. And so, yeah, that that's really, really dangerous to what to me when they say that that's just saying they're agreeing. And what you just said, they want to promote it. Mm-hmm. When you say, yeah, but what about, you're promoting it. Because that's something that you want to keep going. Yeah. You don't want to, you don't want to attack it. You don't want, you don't see that as negative. You see that as positive. I think there's a good, there's a good argument for that. You, yeah. So you don't, you just want to skip the issue altogether. Now, I think that you're saying she's laying out this. The danger grows is the next section. And I believe we're going to get more context and more history. Don't you? Yeah, I think uh, it's very likely this last section was facts. Mm -hmm. And now she's looking at uh, 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 trends. Yes. Maybe. So shall I get into it? Yes, go we're, ahead. We're back in the article. The danger grows. In the midst of this explosion of far-right activity, national governments and international organizations remained laser-focused on jihadi terrorism, building new agencies and spending billions of dollars. Far-right extremism was all but ignored, and it was viewed by international organizations as a domestic problem, facing individual countries not as a common global threat. Of course, jihadi terrorism posed a genuine threat, and still does, especially in conflict-ridden countries in sub-Saharan Africa and the Middle East, where Islamist terror takes the lives of thousands each year. But the global response to the shock of 9-11 was so overblown that it blinded policymakers, security officials, and the broader public to the faster growth of what became, in the United States especially, a much larger threat from far-right extremism. As a result, right-wing terrorist attacks were treated as fringe incidents, rather than as a persistent and growing danger to national security. One that now outstrips jihadi terrorism in terms of the toll on Western societies. Even the most spectacular and gruesome far-right attacks have failed to galvanize terror counterterrorism agencies in the West. In Norway in 2011, for example, 
A far-right extremist named Anders Baring Breivik murdered 77 people, mostly teenagers attending a Labour Party summer camp outside Oslo. Breivik had composed a 1,500-page manifesto in which he railed against Islam, warned about the coming of Eurabia, and cited U.S. anti-Muslim activities at nearly 200 times. His assault received a high degree of media attention, but was often presented as an anomaly, and Breivik himself was sometimes portrayed as a mentally unhinged mass murderer rather than a terrorist, even though his violence was explicitly political. By every relevant, available measure, the numbers of arrests and convictions, the number and severity of plots, the amount of propaganda circulating, and the number of attacks, right-wing extremism has increased significantly. Global terrorism declined in 2019 for the fifth consecutive year, but in North America, Western Europe, Australia, and New Zealand, they increased by 709% during those five years, a consequence of the roughly 250% increase in far-right attacks there. In 2010, there was only one recorded far-right terrorist attack in those places. In 2019, there were 49, which represented nearly half of all terrorist attacks in those places and resulted in 82% of all terrorism-related deaths there. Some may argue that the decline in jihadi terrorism extremism merely reflects the efficacy of the authorities' efforts to combat it, but the tremendous imbalance in the resources and efforts directed towards thwarting terrorist plot, with the vast majority going to fight jihadi terrorism, had direct consequences for the success of the far right. In recent congressional testimony, FBI officials noted that despite the massive shift in the nature of the threat, 80% of their counterterrorism field agents still focus on international terrorism cases. That misallocation of resources has had an impact. Between 9-11 and the end of 2017, two-thirds of violent Islamist plots in the United States were interrupted in the planning phase, compared with less than one-third of violent far-right plots. Okay. Oh, you're muted. Well, yeah. So, um, so well, she's just laying down, laying down statistics, and uh, again saying before uh, she had uh, she was arguing with events that happened, mm-hmm. uh, and this section uh, she's broadening it uh, to. A much broader statistics uh, we're looking that this is not isolated yeah uh, this this is a general type of thing that's that's worldwide uh, it's accelerating uh, in the this last 20 years it's accelerated even more to, to today from 9-11 to today it's accelerating in this last decade this last five years yeah I mean I think uh, that's that's just good scholarship don't you look at these events time. the events is a storytelling device These events happened, these people died. And you say, wow, that's bad. But then this last section was, now let's take a look in aggregate. Because I think if you start off with numbers, it goes over people's heads. So you start off with events. Because that's a story. That's a story someone can latch their mind onto. And then you take those events and say, these events aren't, they don't exist in a vacuum. If you plot them on a trend line, you'll see a positive upward trend of, I mean, an upward trend, I wouldn't call it positive, of increasing <laughs> right-wing violence. Um, I think that's correct. I think that's good scholarship. It is. And she's saying these events are not isolated. These are just symptoms of something very much deeper. 
and uh, it's worldwide and it's uh, it's very broad mm-hmm. and it's also recent look at these dates 2019 2017 2018 they're recent dates so mm-hmm. it's, we're not talking about 1989 we're talking about 2019 mm-hmm. and um it reminds me of the last article we read on tuesday where the united states is a giant ocean liner mm-hmm. um so we're seeing these trend lines in the last 10 years. It's difficult to change course. It's difficult because these institutions have so much institutional inertia to switch focus. What she's saying is it couldn't be any more clear that if you take a look at the incidences of terrorism and the trend lines of terrorism, a strategic shift in focus is absolutely necessary. She's laying out the case for that. I think that's well said, David. I think that's exactly the the takeaway from this article. It's not just facts. It's not just stories. It's not just statistics. It's saying here is the groundwork for a change in strategy going forward. So shall we continue with the article? Okay. The metabolics of hate. Metapolitics. Oh, sorry. (laughs) The metapolitics of hate. Thank you, David. Okay, ready? Mm -hmm. The article. The post-9-11 resurgence of far-right violence reflected reactions to changing social conditions, the rise of jihadism, the opportunism of political provocateurs, and the myopia of the war on terrorism. It was also rooted, however, in an intellectual project launched in the late 1960s by a group of French thinkers called the Nouvelle Droite New Right. Some referred to this group, which included Alain de Benoit uh, and Guillaume Fay, among its founders as the, okay, Gramscians of the Right. Did I pronounce that right? Gramscians, but yeah. Gramscians of the Right, because of their adoption of the Marxist Italian thinker Antonio Gramsci, uh, Gramsci. A uh, call to spur revolution, not by physical force, but by gaining control over how people think through education and cultural change. They adapted that approach into a concept called metapolitics, a term the new right used to describe their effort to foster ethno-nationalist and anti-immigrant ideas and then introduce them into mainstream thought in ways that would eventually lead to political and social change. Metapolitics was an exercise in patience, requiring a new a view of politics as downstream from culture. In the words of the late right-wing American activist Andrew Breitbart, in practice, the strategy involved using academic and mainstream media outlets to critique globalization and liberal de- democratic concepts such as egalitarianism and multiculturalism and argue in favor of ethnic separatism and homogeneity. Such ideas were controversial but influential. In 1978, uh, Den Benoit won France's most coveted intellectual prize, the French Academy's, Academy's prestigious uh, Prix de la Sée. Nearly After nearly 50 years, this long game finally bore fruit. Ideas that had once been relegated to the fringes seeped into the public discourse, 
helping justify hardline anti-immigrant policies. In the early years of this century, stridently far-right political parties made substantial gains in national parliamentary uh, elections across Europe, often by giving even the most vapid extremist ideas the veneer of respectability by draping them in the trappings of intellectualism, an approach perfected by the uh, AFD, which was nicknamed the Professor's Party, and by alt-right figures in the United States, such as Richard Spencer. Right-wing metapolitics formed a feedback loop with politics, political ideas eventually flowing back upstream into the culture when, for example, far-right agitators slapped white supremacist slogans and icons onto hip clothing designs, which many young people then wore to seem rebellious and ultras on social uh, media. During the past decade, far-right groups had succeeded enough to move past metapolitics and could embrace more traditional forms of politics, not only by launching political parties, but also by putting forward something akin to a grand narrative to unify the desperate, part, uh, desperate parties of the movement. A conspiracy theory about coming great replacement of European and white civilization. Coined by a French scholar in a 2011 book by the same name, the term describes an alleged plot by global and national elites to replace white Christian European population with non-white, non-Christian ones. The idea is a kind of greatest hits of right-wing extremists combining the anti-Muslim ideas of Eurobia, American-style white nationalism, and age-old anti-Semitic troops about Jewish domination. The conspiracy theory is powerful because it, remark it is remarkably flexible. A right-wing extremist can adopt the framework against virtually any perceived threat, be it Jews, Muslim immigrants, or even white progressives. In 2019, a terrorist in Christchurch, New Zealand, live-streamed his murder of 51 Muslim worshippers in two mosques after writing a manifesto he titled The Great Replacement. Less than five months later, a terrorist killed 23 people in a Walmart in El Paso after posting a hate-filled manifesto that warned of a Hispanic, Hispanic invasion of uh, Texas and that claimed that white people were being replaced through immigration. Wow. Well, you know, yeah. I think it's fascinating because this replacement theory, they're, they're pushing it on Fox News. You know, Tucker Carlson talks about it every night, about how... You know, they're trying to come, they're coming for you, they're coming for your jobs, they're trying to take you out, they're trying to change America. And you sort of think of it as, you know, that's just playing to the people that are predisposed to think that way. But then again, what she's saying is, these ideas were not in the mainstream. These ideas were not adopted by a broad swath of the people. Um, they've sort of found their roots insidiously into the thought process and now people love having these thoughts fed to them but there was a time when they didn't it's it's fascinating to me and then uh, i think it's fa it's very powerful to connect the theory of you plant the seeds in culture of this and then you sort of move it to politics now i think on a broad political spectrum you know if you get fox news talking about replacement theory every night on tucker carlson's show you'll get people to vote 
for further right candidates, and that does have a legitimate political effect. But what you also get are externalities where churches and mosques and Walmarts get shot up because people don't really know how to handle this information. Yeah. Uh, well, good points, David. Very good points. And I think what, what I think that's exactly the kind of thing she's talking about. And also, it's a really good uh, uh, view on on how this plays out. Uh, you know, just maybe I don't want to derail this this great conversation we're having. But I think just, just a sideline, just a sidebar. Uh, I think it's fascinating. Uh, just truly fascinating that this podcast is Sons of Sequoia. My father, your grandfather, Sequoia, a Native American. And all these people talking about replacement theory are sons of immigrants. Mm -hmm. They're not Native Americans. They are immigrants. This country was built on immigrants mm -hmm. alongside, alongside Native Americans. And Native Americans embraced them, accepted them, helped them get started here. And now they are rising up and saying that we don't want that. Yeah. But that's where they came from. And so it's not about logic. It's not about intellectualism. To me, it's just about hate. Mm -hmm. Going back to the last article, it's us and them. It's just hate. And it says, today you're my friend, tomorrow you're my enemy. That's the mentality that, you, that we are moving toward. And when you do that, when everyone's your enemy, and we, we, we saw that also where uh, uh, in Afghanistan, Looking at the history of Afghanistan, we should we should look at the history of Afghanistan also. Uh, they did the same thing there. Uh, they came together, then they turned against one another. So the idea is that is that what's happening here is that uh, we're we're beginning to fall. All these movements is oh that's sad. No, it's not. It's it's uh, uh, a harbinger of doom. We're beginning to fall. I I think though. Being able to recognize this, being able to sort of have a discussion about it, a scholarly and measured discussion about it. And then, like you said, OK, this is interesting. What are the solutions going to be? How do we proceed? I think that's the only thing you can do. You can say, oh, look at this. What, how can you stand in the face of all this hate? How can you stand where, you know, there's a broad swath of people getting information like replacement theory and sort of believing that hook, line and sinker? Well, the thing is, you got to do something. And we're talking about it. We're listening to experts about it. I think that we're yes. doing something by having this podcast, by putting it out into the world. I think that there's perhaps more aggressive techniques you could use to try to deprogram people that believe uh, hate-filled ideologies. And, and your initial point about, you know, indigenous peoples, um, you know, the El Paso shooter talked about the Hispanic invasion of Texas. The fascinating thing to me is that, you know, Insofar as any of these Hispanics um, had Spanish and indigenous blood, they have a greater claim to Texas than, <laughs> than a white person. Um, they do. If you're doing, do. a, you know, uh, a, their bloodline extends further in this land, I guess, if, if you want to look at it that way. So, like you said, it's not about logic. It's not about reason. Um, it's, it's about I think it's about hate. And also, David, where do we start? How do we make this? What are the solutions? And maybe the first thing that needs to happen 
is for people to say, for people to have the ability to say, maybe I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'm wrong. And let me listen to other voices that are against me. And let's let's be honest with ourselves and let's be honest with with reality mm -hmm. and don't don't fall down these rabbit holes that are that are falsehoods maybe that's the start to say maybe i'm wrong mm -hmm. so Blow we, we still have not gotten to her proposed solutions right yeah but she's really laying out a, a really strong case that we're in trouble mm-hmm um, and I believe, just blowback, the title of this next section leads me to believe that we're not going to get too many solutions in this section as well. But I'll read it anyway. <laughs> blowback, and we're back to the article. The anti-Muslim propaganda and conspiracy theories that eventually merged into the Great Replacement narrative were in many cases inadvertently aided by counterterrorism policies that muddied the distinction between Islamist terrorism and Islam. In the wake of 9-11... Counter-extremist approaches, such as the so-called prevent policy in the United Kingdom or the New York City Police Department's Muslim surveillance program, targeted ordinary Muslim communities. A full decade after 9-11, the FBI was using Islamophobic training materials that described ordinary Muslims as terrorist sympathizers whose charitable donations were a funding mechanism for combat. For far-right activists, such practices seem to confirm that Islam itself posed an existential and civilizational threat. Such approaches also paved the way for more overtly discriminatory ideas, such as Trump's musing during the 2016 presidential campaign about building a national database of Muslims and his promise to ban all Muslims from entering the United States. Meanwhile, the global war on terrorism led to military actions across the Middle East that triggered an unprecedented migration crisis in Europe, which in turn energized the far right. After the U.S. invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq, millions of people fled those countries for Europe, creating an influx of Muslims that produced an intense backlash, featuring anti-Muslim marches and hundreds of attacks on refugees and asylum seekers. U.S. military actions in the Middle East also drove anti-Muslim sentiment among active duty troops and in veterans' communities. Merchandise for sale on websites catering to military veterans helped carry Islamophobic sentiment fostered on the front lines into civilization, civilian life back home. Bumper stickers and t-shirts, for example, allowed American soldiers to proudly identify as infidels and displayed Arabic text with the phrase, stay back 100 meters or you will be shot. Against this backdrop, the United States saw the growth of unlawful militias in the anti-government extremist movement, including some that recruited from active duty troops and veterans communities. Like the returning Vietnam War veterans who had helped launch the white power movement in the 1970s, some veterans of the wars of Afghanistan and Iraq returned home with a sense of anger and betrayal. Others grappled with post-traumatic stress, which research suggests can increase one's vulnerability to extremist recruitment. The dehumanization that soldiers are trained to embrace as a battlefield tactic, for example, may not automatically turn off on one's re-entry into civilian society. And the rhetoric used by far-right extremist groups to recruit members with appeals to brotherhood, heroism, the defense of one's people, and a chance to be part of a meaningful cause, echoed the language that had attracted many to enlist in the armed forces in the first place. You're muted. Very, very well said. Very, that was a good section. Short, but very, very powerful, very strong. That last paragraph, 
you know, I, I, I heard the other day uh, on NPR a history of Afghanistan from the invasion of the Soviets in the 80s and the 90s and the Americans coming in. And, and uh, the history was fascinating because over the people grew up with war. They grew up with terror. They grew up with hating the Soviets and then hating the Americans. Uh, and they grew up with how to fight. And all they knew, all they knew was war and all they knew was hate. Uh, and that, and they, they were indoctrinated. Their religion was that. And th they talked about how movement of people uh, and how the training from childhood. Uh, and so in this last paragraph, they talked about the troops, the U.S. troops that were trained, usually in their 20s, and then they go over there and they come back in the 30s and it changed. Well, what happens if you if you were trained ever since you were from birth? Mm -hmm. You're not going to change. And so we go into other countries and say, well, this is what you need to do because this is how we've done it. And they're not going to listen to you. So how do you combat that? And I don't think that uh, uh, military combat does not erase the hate. I think it accelerates it and inflames it because that's all they know. And so you're feeding right into their paradigm. Mm -hmm. And so uh, she's outlining how we are doing the same thing they are doing, mm -hmm. how, how we are supporting wars uh, by going to war and that war is at home. And so people always have that within them. People have hate in them if it's fueled. Yeah. Somehow you have to to defuel the hate and bring unity. And uh, maybe that's going to be part of the solution. Maybe. I'm not sure we're going to get a solution in this article. But I think before, I think, before we move on, I want to say we talked a little bit about we watched the Nexium stuff. And we watched uh, Adam Newman. We didn't do a podcast on this, but Adam Newman and the WeWork stuff. But appeals mm -hmm. to brotherhood, heroism, defense of one's people, a chance to be part of a meaningful cause. He was, you know, when we watched the WeWork documentary, he was trying to make this company a cause. Oh, it's part of the We Revolution. And it's like, you're just trying to make money for yourself. <laughs> and so it's like, why would I do something that doesn't benefit me? Because I can be part of something. And it's like, but who does it benefit? It benefits the guy that's going to take off with all the cash. Um, and I think that a lot of people, they want belonging. They want someone to say, I understand you. They want to feel like they're a part of something that's meaningful. And if you provide that to them, the sad thing is that people know that. And a lot of times you can exploit that. That's exploitable, that desire in humans to sort of, I want to be part of a brotherhood. I want to feel like a hero. I want to feel like I'm a defender and a protector. I want to be part of a meaningful cause. Now, there's noble ways to do that. But people say, well, these people, they've done the noble way. They've, they've enlisted in military service. They've served their country. They come back. They don't know what to do with their lives. What if I exploit everything they've learned about what being noble is and you channel them into an ignoble cause. And I think that the sad thing about human nature is that people realize you can do that and it'll be effective. That's, that's very true, very true. 
And I think a lot of the uh, terror in other countries that came upon us, uh, talking about appeals to brotherhood, heroism and defense of peoples and chance to be part of a meaningful cause. Well, a chance to be part of a meaningful cause is our perspective in America. Mm -hmm. We're going to take up a cause, take up the banner. Let's do this. Let's do that because we have the freedom to do so. But in other countries, they don't do that. In other countries, it's not a cause. It's a religion. It's part of who they are. It's that you can't say don't do that because that's not who they are. I think that, I think, I I, I disagree. I disagree. Okay, well, I think. I heard this the other day. I think. Okay, that's just a proposal. I think by saying that, you're sort of echoing some of the. Um, issues that we had where you're saying it's their religion, it's who they are. I think that if you look at Al-Qaeda, if the people that perpetrated the attacks, they were sold this language as well. And the blowback that came on the Afghan people, 90, 95% of them had nothing to do with the Taliban, you know? So I think you're saying... You know, for us, it's just a few people that are extremists. For them, they're all extremists. That's that's yeah, sort of no, 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 David. I'm not saying that. Yes, but that's that. that's what I was getting from what you're saying. It's their religion. Oh, okay. It's like, but it's yeah. not their religion. The extremism part of Islam is I, like the extremism part of right wing Christian fundamentalism in America. Not everyone who goes to church on Sunday is a right wing Christian fundamentalist. Not everyone no. who goes to church on Sunday wants to perpetrate. Um, violent acts against immigrants here in America. It's, it's the same with extremist Islamists. Not everyone who worships Allah is a terrorist. And I think that's an important distinction to draw. Thank you, David. Thank you, because that's not what I meant. Thank you very much. What I meant was is that in the United States, these extremists, they have a cause, and they might use religion for that cause, but it's all about the cause. Uh, and terrorism, their terrorism and their hate is steeped in, in the, 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 it's, it's the Islamic State and it's also their, it's as a religion. It's, it's more of who they are and they can't go, they can't move away from that. I, d- well, but do you think a- that, you know, oh, here in America, if you commit a terrorist act, if you commit, a, if you're a domestic terrorist, Tim McVeigh, he was just misguided. But those terrorists who bombed the Trade Center, that's just who they are. I think there's a difficult distinction to draw there. I think that you Maybe may be so. off. I think that Maybe all so, all of these people get radicalized by nefarious forces. And they act upon that radicalization and. I think religion in both cases has a lot to do with it, you know? So it's like, in America, why would you be a domestic terrorist? Well, you're defending white Christian nationalism. And Christian is just as uh, important a part of your decision to be a terrorist in America as um, perhaps if you're an international terrorist, you know, some sort of distorted view of what Islam is. So a distorted view of Christianity plays into an American terrorist's or, you know, a white nationalist Christian terrorist's decision calculus, the same way that Islam plays into a, um, a Muslim terrorist's decision calculus. Well, I don't think it's the same. 
Uh, I don't. I really don't think it's the same. From what I hear, I, I haven't been in these other countries. But mm-hmm. from what I hear, people coming back to talk about these other countries, uh, we don't put we don't put automatic weapons in the hands of an eight-year-old and teach them how to kill the enemy. And all people in other countries do not do that. But there are elements that do do that. Yeah, and and would now, those eight-year-olds be... have automatic weapons if we hadn't made the decision to invade that country? Maybe so. Maybe so. So maybe Good. maybe that's we, absolutely true. Maybe we did put automatic weapons in the hands of that eight-year-old. Maybe we were. That's what this article is about. Maybe maybe we were the ones responsible for radicalizing them. There you go. That may be. That may again. You may be right. You may be right. And I think okay. I could be way wrong. Uh, maybe I'm wrong. But the point is that there is no easy answer here. And I think everybody needs to step back and say, well, maybe I'm wrong. But let's think about what everyone has to say. And let's let's get to the root cause of these mm-hmm. things instead of just just going off on just just uh, uh, theories that have very little and to, in some cases no uh, facts, based yeah. on no facts. Uh, so I guess the thing is, does it really matter in terms of de-radicalizing people? How do you de-radicalize people? Well, you I mean, I think with your postulation, it's like, well, I think that these domestic terrorists can be de-radicalized because they, are, they didn't grow up in a war zone. So how do we de-radicalize domestic terrorists and stop the rise of right-wing uh, Christian nationalist terrorism? We can do that. That's actually not a futile cause because they didn't grow up in a war zone. Is that what you're saying? Well, what I what I was getting at is that uh, when you have radicalism, mm-hmm. uh, people are not going to be radical unless they have it in them. Okay, but then if you take a 20 and 30 year old, and all of a sudden you radicalize them, then they are prone to do that. But if they have radicalism from birth it's much deeper set mm-hmm. it, it's much deeper set and uh, uh, when we went into Vietnam back in the in the 60s in the 50s and 60s uh, did we cause uh, a long-term uh, under undertow of hate uh, against the Americans uh, because we were there so my point is, it's different for people who are taught and when they're older than people who are taught when they're younger and that's all they know. Yeah, although I'm thinking a lot of these right-wing Christian nationalists, the guy that shot up El Paso, um, you know, these specific events, my guess is the radicalization began when they were children. You look <laughs> at the early 90s, the early 90s, okay, we had this problem. The 1995 Oklahoma City bombing sort of turned the tides on, you know, this right-wing extremist nationalist terrorism. Now, there was this huge cohort of people in the early 90s who ascribed to right-wing nationalist terrorism. Now, if you're 30 years old, your parents may have been one of those people who ascribed to right-wing nationalist terrorism in the early 90s. If you're 30 years old, if you're a, a full-grown adult, there was this huge 
swath of people across the United States. So these people, you just say, oh, they may have gone to war and, you know, they experienced No, they may have been radicalized since birth. And I think that it's, a, I, it's hard to just imagine, oh, in America, things are different because I'm from America and I know my experience. I don't think you know the experience of someone that grew up in America that didn't have your experience. So every place is different. You know, David, what you're saying, I think you're right. I, I think I could be wrong. And I say, I guess what you're saying and what I'm beginning to think is that what I said, I understand. And I don't I don't pull back from that. It's true. But what I said about the America was wrong. So maybe they are the same, but just a different way, a different way of doing it. Mm hmm. They both were indoctrinated from birth, just different ways. Mm -hmm. So, so we're just we're just fueling the hate, and so somehow societies have to get away from from fueling hate, and and somehow we need to to not fight the terrorism at the surface, but fight the cause, which is which is hate. Yeah. Well, um, shall we continue well, with the article? <laughs> yeah, there's another section. Another war on terror. Is this mine? I think so. Okay. Uh, the good news is that the upsurge in far-right violence has finally commanded the attention of counterterrorism officials. A scramble to realign resources and assemble expertise is now underway. From the UN Security Council to national parliaments to militaries and security agencies, there are currently dozens of commissions, special task forces, briefings, listening sessions, and investigations taking place across the globe to explore ways to counter the new threat. Some countries have already announced new legislation. Germany, for example, plans to spend 1 billion euros on 89 specific measures to counter racism and right-wing extremism. And New Zealand's wide-ranging response to the Christchurch attack includes proposed changes to hate crime legislation and counterterrorism laws, the establishment of a new ministry for ethnic communities, funding to enhance securities for communities particularly threatened by terrorism, and the creation of a new national center for social cohesion and prevention of extremism. Changes are afoot in the United States as well. In October 2020, the Department of Homeland Security's annual threat assessment finally declared domestic violent extremism to be the most pressing and lethal threat facing the country. A few months later, the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol brought that reality into sharp relief. In June of this year, the Biden administration released the country's first ever National Strategy for Countering Domestic Terrorism, which emphasizes preventing ra uh, radicalization by strengthening media literacy skills and building resilience to online disinformation and the need to address the underlying conditions that help fuel domestic extremism, including racism and insufficient gun control. This represents a welcome change. But the implementation of new policies around the globe will encounter significant challenges as the West pivots from the prior era of terrorism. The problem is partly structural. The strategies designed to combat jihadi terrorism 
surveilling and monitoring the hierarchical groups of leaders and cells, are a poor fit for the post-organizational nature of far-right extremism. Formal groups play a diminishing role in far-right recruitment and radicalization, which more typically take place in a vast and ever-expanding online ecosystem of propaganda and disinformation. Only 13% of the far-right terrorist attacks in North America, Western Europe, Australia, New Zealand, between 20, 2002 and 2019, that resulted in at least one death, were attributable to a specific group. Today's far-right extremism involves fewer backwoods initiation rituals and attacks by cells and more self-directed training and solo operations, live streamed for global audience. The motivations and ideologies of far-right groups are more muddled than those of the jihadi groups of which most terrorism experts are accustomed. The far-right universe includes pep, uh, preppers, vegan neo-Nazis, anti-vaccine activists, QAnon followers, and thousands of unclassified radicals who have assembled bits of far-right propaganda into choose-your-own-adventure belief systems that don't always make such sense to outsiders. Some far-right groups promote LGBTQ rights and women's rights, for example, in order to draw supporters from the progressive left by arguing that they are defending what they claim are Western values against Islamic aggression. Or consider eco-fascists who back uh, border closures as a way of protecting and preserving terrorists threatening by climate change, not for the good of humanity, but for the benefit of white people who they believe have a blood and soil entitlement to those lands. Combating these threats will, will revolve less around the surveillance and monitoring that we signature, that were signature tactics in the global war on terrorism and more, and more around building societies, resilience to propaganda and disinformation. The politics of fear practiced by many officials and leaders in Western countries in the post 9-11 era clearly contributed to right-wing radicalization by encouraging people to feel that they lacked control over their own lives, to see themselves as vulnerable and to fear outsiders this style of politics opened a door for extremists who marched right through it. So fighting the far right will also mean more fully abandoning the civilization, civilizational logic that undergirded the war on terrorism, sometimes consciously, sometimes inadvertently. Counterterrorism authorities must do away with politics and messages predicated on the idea that Islam poses a threat to Western civilization which helped create a kind of ideological scaffolding on which the far right has built a movement. Wow. Just pretty much outlining that we kind of kind of shot ourselves in the foot, it seems to me like. Yeah. I mean, All the stuff we did ourselves. I think some of that is to your point as well. When you think of terror, like your point that we were arguing before we went into the section, when you think yes. of terrorism, you think of hierarchical terrorists, terrorist cells, people that have been trained at these schools in Afghanistan or whatever, you know, the, the traditional, whereas, you know, right-wing American homegrown terrorism is sort of a do-it-yourself operation. Yep. And it's not directed by any group. There's no, 
Al-Qaeda for far-right Christian, you know, terrorists here. The Michigan militia, the militias that we saw in the early 90s, they're not... They're not a thing anymore, but there might be online communities that are just people that hold a hodgepodge of ideas, and they find something to latch on to, and, and they propagate themselves. So it's less hierarchical, less organized, and I think that means that it'll be harder to – also, um, the racial component of it, it's, it's harder to prosecute um, people that are citizens of the United States of America. To say these citizens that are sort of actively seeking out this information and sort of absorbing it and training themselves for some sort of nefarious act, despite the fact that they're American citizens, they shouldn't be allowed to do that. And I worry because when she talks about stuff like this um, and she says it's very difficult to switch gears from a hierarchical cell-oriented approach to people discussing all this stuff, and then she sort of enumerates the types of groups, you know, preppers, vegan neo-Nazis, anti-vaccine activists, QAnon followers, unclassifiable radicals. Um, one way to sort of separate the wheat from the chaff is to use algorithmic data sorting on public social media sites. But one thing that I've found that I've heard in interviews recently, and I think it was an interview with the guy that did the QAnon documentary on HBO, who said, if I didn't have HBO as a distribution mechanism, it would have been difficult to do this on this scale by myself, like on YouTube, because YouTube takes any discussion of this stuff, of the QAnon conspiracy theories, of, of preppers, of, and they say, we're just going to shut that all down algorithmically so that people don't have any context. So voices in support of it and voices condemning it, you just don't get that. So what do you do? You go to alternative places where you get whatever you want to hear. You know, if you want to hear that QAnon is real, you go to QAnonisReal.com and you find out that it is. Um, and so I feel like algorithmic sorting of information um, or, you know, improving digital literacy algorithmically, that is eventually a mechanism to combat this, but I don't think we're there yet. I, I agree. Well, now she's, she is posing approaches mm -hmm. to combat this. Uh, but to me, she's she's really saying uh, we need to look internally. Mm -hmm. uh, and military is not going to be a solution to this. Military intervention. Well, also, I think her point is this military intervention sort of fueled the flames of what's happened at home. That's true. So, you know, establishing domestic programs and, you know, tolerance centers or whatever, that seems like the that's a good way to proceed. It's it's obvious. But if your argument is warmongering abroad brought this on ourselves, maybe the the solution is and you don't want to say it is maybe we should stop warmongering abroad. <laughs> Or if we want, yeah, or change our tactics. I think uh, it's a new world and we have to rethink how we do things. And I think rather than us going in, for example, and rather than us going in and making things happen, uh, we should start creating alliances 
all around the world, uh, very strong alliances to where we we collectively move toward a better a better world. Rather than looking at a better America, you can't have a better America with a with everybody against you. You have to have a better world. So now, maybe instead of- now we as in the American government, and so if we form an alliance with Europe and Latin America and Africa and Asia uh, for a better world, how does that keep some twenty-four-year-old kid who's inculcated in um, right-wing terrorist conspiracy theories from perpetrating an act? That's, yeah, initially it, it yeah. initially it doesn't. I think long term it will. And like he, she's saying, you have to get away from uh, uh, acts that encourage that type, those types of behavior. Yeah, and engage in acts that undermine that kind of behavior, and you become more and more of the outward fringe. And those twenty-four-year-olds will still have harbor those feelings, but not have an opportunity to act because it just there is no opportunity then. Yeah, or you redirect the culture to where they they use that aggression in a different area, perhaps a for less way. nefarious means. Exactly. Should we finish the article? Yeah, go ahead. Tomorrow never knows. Tomorrow never knows. In the weeks after January 6th, Washington, D.C. became a militarized zone. Wide swaths of downtown were fenced off, with military checkpoints on the bridges and more than 25,000 National Guard forces deployed to secure the city before President Joe Biden's inauguration. Perhaps Americans will simply become used to these security measures, just as global travelers came to accept the beltless, shoeless shuffle through airport security. To avoid that outcome, U.S. counterterrorism officials will have to get better at preventing There is little evidence about what works to prevent radicalization or help people disengage from extremist movements, and even less knowledge about what kind of interventions can be effectively scaled up. Other countries take holistic approaches, involving agencies that deal with health and human services, culture, education, and social welfare. U.S. expertise, however, remains concentrated in security and law enforcement agencies. Although Biden's new national strategy signals a shift, envisioning a coordinated multi-agency effort to reduce polarization, limit access to firearms, and combat racism. Perhaps the single most important lesson to draw from the far right's mobilization over the past 20 years is that liberal democratic ideas and institutions must be nurtured through education and not just defended by force. The best way to fight an omnipresent extremist fringe is not through suppression alone, but by making mainstream society more resilient and less vulnerable to far right appeals. This is the defensive democracy approach that Germany pursued after World War II, which involves sustained federal investments in scalable evidence-based media literacy programs to strengthen citizens' support for multicultural democracy and its core tenets. It requires giving all citizens the tools to recognize and reject extremist propaganda and disinformation. Federal agencies cannot do this job on their own. Such efforts work best when integrated with initiatives at the local level, where leaders enjoy more trust and are better equipped to understand their communities' needs. Security and law enforcement agencies still have a role to play, but authorities should broaden the pool of experts who advise them on terrorism. Agencies full of experts trained overwhelmingly in Islamist sources of terrorism have struggled to recognize and respond to the far-right threat. Governments should forge teams of cross-agency experts in social work, psychology, and education, and on topics such as cults, gangs, gender-based violence, racism, and trauma. 
They should also establish deeper relationships with academics and research centers, where younger scholars often have their fingers on the pulse of new and evolving threats. There is no crystal ball that can predict what the future of terrorism will bring, but if there is one certainty, it is this. Tomorrow's extremism will not look exactly like today's. The United States will likely see more violence from radical environmentalists, from coalitions of anti-vaccine, anti-government and conspiracy theory groups, and from groups that seek the collapse of social, political, and economic systems in furtherance of a variety of hard-to-define ideological goals. As the danger evolves, the worst thing the country could do is to once again focus obsessively and exhaustively on the threat it faces today. Okay. Got it. <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of agree with that a yeah. lot. You know? It's kind of what we said, right? Yeah, I have to change uh, how people think mm -hmm. and what's important to people and change... Change a society and a culture where violence is not uh, important, or violence is not the way to do it, uh, and you you don't. And society and culture can motivate people in different ways. Mm -hmm. So let's create a society and a culture within our society that where violence is not something that is sought after. It's not acceptable, and uh, today it is. You know, stand down and stand by. Yeah. So I should not be a police, should not be a call. I think that, uh, I mean, it's a good article. Now, the the proposed ways forward are very amorphous because it's difficult to say how do we react to this evolving threat when we don't know the answer. But I think the answer is uh, try. <laughs> I, I like how she ended this, not saying, do this, it's a silver bullet. There is no silver bullet. Mm -hmm. We have to change how we think, how we act. Uh, we gotta, we got to look into our, inside ourselves. The solution is with us. Uh, the solution is not outside of us like a silver bullet. And uh, uh, I kind of like how she ended it. She says, no, wait a minute, let's, let's step back, rethink this, and let's... Uh, uh, Look at uh, the facts. Let's look at education, psychology, social work. Let's come together as a nation. And so, yeah, that is how we do it. But then that, that is what's needed. But how you do it has to come from each one of us. Yes. And I think that uh, another good thing that sort of echoes 9-11 happens. We send troops into Afghanistan and Iraq. It causes this mobilization of immigrants, this demonization of Islam. It perhaps radicalizes more terrorists than it um, neutralizes. And she's saying, let's take a look at January 6th. Our current response readiness capability is all in the hands of law enforcement. What did we do to ensure that there wasn't a terrorist attack on the inauguration day? We put 25,000 troops in the Capitol. Now, if military is your solution, if military is your go-to, your enemies will see that as a solution for them, too. And so I think what she's saying is, yes, you need law enforcement. You need the FBI. You need the National Guard to handle specific events. And yet, that can't be your solution. The, the solution to warding off domestic terrorism in America can't be to have 25,000 National Guard troops whenever you want something done. Uh, and I think that's, that's a good point. If military is your defense, then that gives a message that military will be your offense. Yes, and military is the state of play. If education 
if education and bringing in scholarship and focusing on psychology and and media literacy is your playbook, that'll, I mean, if you devote resources to that, that'll sort of leach its way into the state of play, at least a little bit, more than just pure force, guns. If you're going to defend with guns, they're going to play offense with guns. But there, I mean... The old saying, if you live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. Yes, I... so I think that it's a good point. And I like the article. I think that she did a good job of laying out specific incidences, drawing trend lines, sort of showing how a militaristic posture may lead to a militaristic backlash and how perhaps the route forward will be in less um, corporeal punishments and more in sort of trying to understand the situation and using non-coercive resources to develop solutions. And I like the article. I like what Cynthia Miller Idris said because I think I learned. Mm-hmm. I think I learned from from what she was saying and how she laid things out and her conclusions, and I kind of agree with her. And I think I learned that you have to be careful drawing conclusions too quickly, and you have to listen to what people are saying and try to understand what they're saying, and uh, you don't have to agree with them. But that doesn't mean you, you you discard them because they may be right and you may be wrong. Mm-hmm. I think I think people need and people need our society needs to accept that. If someone says, you know, I said that, but I was wrong. Well, don't hold that against them. That should be a positive thing mm-hmm. if they change and start doing things that are right. And so uh, we pull things out. Our society is such a, a labeling society such a a condemning society and it's not a forgiving society and that needs to change too yeah i i think you know last episode you asked me some questions and i was i didn't know how to answer them because it was indelicate just sort of i think it was comparing 9-11 to something else you know well that was asymmetrical like they didn't play by the rules when they attacked 9-11 it was okay for us to use military intervention and it's it's difficult for me to realize, like, I don't want to be on the record saying that stuff. <laughs> you know what I mean? People died in both instances. and Or when you play right. devil's advocate and you're like, someone could take that clip and be like, look, this person's a Taliban sympathizer. And it's like, I don't want to be a Taliban sympathizer. But I think that everything we learn in life is from other people. And the expertise of Cynthia Miller Idris, director of the Polarization and Extremism Research and Innovation Lab at American University and author of Hate in the Homeland, the New Global Far Right, I think what we've learned from her is more than we knew before we started this podcast this morning. And I totally agree. I totally agree, David. And we may have said some things that we may not agree with ourselves in six months, but we're also learning, we're absorbing her perspective into our body of knowledge. And I think that she is a very knowledgeable person, scholar, and I'm glad that we did this episode today. If we change our minds, it'd be nice to change our minds by listening to people who are scholars in this area, who understand the issues, who've lived with the issues, who know the issues, and actually see from their intelligent, see solutions and directions that we need to go towards solutions. And uh, if I'm going to change my mind, uh, I want to do so by listening to these these scholars and people who know what they're talking about and not listen to people who don't know what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. And they're just trying to spread falsehoods 
uh, just for for whatever reason, uh, for evil. And I think that may be a good place to stop it. Don't you? May, yes, it was good. Um, would you like to say the tagline and we'll get out of here? Sure, let's go. Uh, the Sons of Sequoia podcast says, keep on talking, but listen more than you talk and try to understand what the other person is saying. Bye.